After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement, with my tunic and cloak torn, and fell on my knees, with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we were slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the command you gave through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is as a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered round him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, this matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. 
So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehonah, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra, the priest, stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honour the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here and it is a rainy season, we, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asiel, and Jazia, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as was proposed. Ezra, the priest, selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Do you have Ezra open in front of you, as Danny has already encouraged us to do? And let's pray as we come to God's Word. Our loving and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that these are not dead words of an old and outdated book, but the living words of the living God. Father, please help us to listen to you this morning and to take to heart what you have to say to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Danny has already said, we uh, this morning come to the end of our time looking at the book of Ezra. And as we do that, I want to begin uh, with a question that we've already started thinking about. And that is, how do you tend to feel about failure? How do you feel about failure? Uh, maybe it's a work project that goes completely wrong. Maybe it's a, a sports competition that ends badly. Maybe, like lots of people, lockdown has just left you feeling like you're failing at pretty much everything. Whatever it is, just think for a minute, how do you tend to feel about failure? And then think about it in the Christian life. How do you respond? How do you feel when you feel like you've just let God down again? When you failed him in that same way again. I imagine all of us know what it feels like to fail. And so the question I want us to think about this morning is not so much, have you ever failed? But what do you do when it happens? 
How should we respond as Christians when we fail? And to answer that question, we're going to look at these two chapters, chapters 9 and 10 of Ezra. We're going to see first what failure looks like before thinking about how we should respond when it happens. So first we see the failure of God's people, and the focus of this is really chapter 9. If you can remember back to last week, chapter 8 ended with a second group of people returning to Jerusalem, and they were led by Ezra. Remember, God's man sent to teach God's word. And at the start of chapter 9, we begin to see the impact of Ezra's word ministry among the people. Just look at chapter 9, verse 1 again. After these things have been done, the leaders came to me, that's Ezra, and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Ezra has been teaching God's word for some months now, and in doing so, he has begun to expose the people's sin. And so this group of leaders come to him and bring a report saying, the people have been unfaithful. They have failed. They've failed to live according to God's word. And the nature of that failure can be seen in verse 2. They've taken some of the daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. The people's sin, their unfaithfulness, comes in the form of relationships. Rather than separating themselves from the detestable practices of those around them, the people have married into them. They've taken foreign wives, the leaders say, and adopted their pagan practices. That's something that we can see later on in verses 11 and 12 that God has explicitly told them not to do. And so the people have been unfaithful, disobedient to God's word. And as we're going to see in these chapters, that is a really serious problem. But before we even get to how big a problem it is, we, we might think this is a bit of a strange command for God to make in the first place. Why would he forbid his people from marrying foreigners? Is this just an example of racism in the Bible? It might seem strange to us, but whenever we come across a command like this one, the first thing we need to do is to remember the context. You see, the whole Bible makes it clear that God cares about all types of people. It's always been his plan from the very beginning to save people from all nations, all ethnicities, all backgrounds. However, the way that he chooses to do that in the Old Testament is through a particular group of people, the Israelites. They were his special people, a a nation set apart from the others to live in wholehearted obedience to him. And they were to live in that way so that they were obviously different from the world around them, from the nations that surrounded them. And their difference would be attractive. In living differently, they would show the watching world what it meant, what it looked like to live in relationship with the one true God. Their lives were meant to be so distinct, so attractive that others would look at them and want to be part of that 
want to know their God. We've already seen this happening in Ezra. We only skimmed over it. You might not have spotted it. But back in chapter 6, verse 21, we're told how the Israelites celebrated the Passover together. And they did it, 6 verse 21, together with all those who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbours in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. And so you see, holiness, it was never meant to exclude people. It was meant to draw them in. That was what was meant to happen. The problem was that, well, God's people had chosen disobedience over distinctiveness. And not only did that blur the lines between God's people and everyone else, it was a direct offense to the God who ordered that command in the first place. Failure to obey God's word wasn't just serious because of the effect it had on their witness. It was serious because at its heart, it was unfaithfulness to God. And we can see how serious that is as Ezra responds in verse 3. He says, When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Ezra is utterly appalled at the unfaithfulness of God's people. He is speechless at their failure to live for God and obey his word. And he's not just pointing the finger at all those sinners out there. Look at what he prays in verse 6. He says, I'm too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. Ezra is utterly ashamed of his people's sin and he includes himself in that disgrace. And what, what is it that he finds so awful, so shameful about what they've done? Well, in verses 7 to 10, it's that the people have thrown God's kindness back in his face. Ezra describes in those verses how God has shown his people immeasurable kindness and grace. How he's rescued and restored them. We've seen that in the book. How he's given them relief from their bondage, verse 8. He's granted them new life and protection, verse 9. God has shown his people immeasurable kindness, and yet the way they've responded to that is to continue to disobey his words. God has given them blessing after blessing after blessing, and their response is to take that and continue in unfaithfulness. And so no wonder Ezra is appalled. No wonder he can't bring himself to lift his face to God, as he says. The people have utterly failed and so we see the conclusion to his prayer in verse 15 he says lord the god of israel you are righteous we are left this day as a remnant here we are before you in our guilt though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence what does failure look like for god's people Well, Ezra chapter 9 says that failure is unfaithfulness. It is disobedience to God's word. It is disregard for his grace. 
And as we've seen throughout this book, although there are big differences between us and the people of God back then, the principles remain the same. God's people today are not a single nation like Israel was. We're no longer under the law of Moses, the law which commanded people not to marry foreigners or to adopt their practices. And so our situation is different to the people of Ezra's day. But but God's people today are still called to live in a way that is distinct from the world around them. We've seen that in 1 Peter on Sunday evenings, haven't we? Just listen to how Peter talks about all those who have trusted in Christ. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Peter says it's no longer the nation of Israel, but the church that God describes as a holy nation, his special possession. It's the church that God calls to declare his praises to the watching world. How do we do that? Peter goes on in chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so you see, God continues to call call his people to live distinct lives and display his glory. He continues to call us to respond to his kindness and his grace in living in obedience to his word. Which means a key question for us this morning is how are we doing? How are we doing in obeying God's word? Am I living in a way that is distinct, different from the world around me? Or have I become complacent, not that bothered about my sin? Am I being faithful in the way that God has called me to live? Or like the people in Ezra, am I throwing God's kindness back in his face by living in persistent unfaithfulness? Does my sin horrify me in the way that it does for Ezra? Chapter 9 is all about the failure of God's people. And as Ezra and the people face up to their failure, as they face up to their own unfaithfulness, the question is, is there any hope? Is there any hope for them? And that brings us to the second thing we need to see, the hope for God's people. Ezra confesses Israel's sin in chapter 9, and at the beginning of chapter 10, we see the impact of his prayer. 10 verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Ezra's response, his confession, wakes the people up to the seriousness of their sin. They're brought to their knees as they weep bitterly with Ezra. And it all seems pretty dark. Pretty hopeless. 
But then we read in verse 2. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Despite their unfaithfulness, despite their sin, there is still hope for God's people. And this hope comes in the form of their response. Verse 3, Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. There is hope for Israel, says Shechaniah, if we take action. There is hope for Israel if we repent, if we turn back to God. What does the repentance look like? Well, verse 3 says it looks like sending away the foreign wives and their children. It means separating themselves from those unlawful marriages and committing to live according to God's word once more. And just as with the command in the first place back in chapter 9, we might find that response hard to understand. We might wonder how that could possibly be the right course of action. How can this make sense? And, and if you're wondering that, you're, you're not alone. Commentators and Bible teachers have all sorts of ideas about the rights and wrongs of the people's response here in chapter 10. And to be honest, it doesn't seem to be an easy answer. But I think that's partly the point. You see, whilst I do think this is the right response according to God's law in this situation, we still find it an uncomfortable one, don't we? It's uncomfortable, it's messy, because, well, because that is the nature of sin and of its consequences. It's clearly not an easy matter for Ezra to resolve. In verse 6, he, he has to withdraw and continues to mourn and fast as he decides what to do next. Sin is messy. There aren't quick fixes or neat solutions. Having said that, I think there is one principle we need to remember as we think about how this applies to us. And that is that we need to be really careful in drawing straight lines from the people back then through to us today. As we've already said, we are no longer under the Old Testament law. And so those of us who are married to unbelieving husbands or wives mustn't take this to mean that we are to separate from them. Both the Apostle Paul and Peter in the New Testament instruct Christian wives to stick with their unbelieving husbands as part of their witness to Christ. And so we do need to be careful as we apply these things to our lives today. But whatever we make of their response back then, we also need to be careful not to miss the wood for the trees. Because the big thing that we need to see in chapter 10 is the need for repentance. And I think there are three things worth noticing about that repentance in this chapter. The first is that it is radical. Whatever we make of the people's response, we can't say that it's 
half-hearted or, or superficial when it comes to sin. The people are deeply convicted of their disobedience to God's word. And so they take radical action to sort it out. And Jesus talks in similarly radical terms when it comes to dealing with sin, doesn't he? In Matthew 18, he says, If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. Repentance involves radical action. To repent literally means to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. And so whilst we do need to be really careful in applying these things to our lives today, we also need to see that sometimes the right response is not the easy response. Sometimes we do need to take drastic action when it comes to our sin. Even if that is emotionally or relationally difficult. For example, if you are a Christian who is dating someone who does not believe in the Lord Jesus, then taking sin seriously, living distinctly, will mean getting out of that situation, ending that relationship, however hard or painful that might be. The people's repentance was radical. It was also corporate. In verse 9, the whole community gathers in Jerusalem to hear what Ezra has to say. And the verdict comes in verse 10. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. You have been unfaithful, says Ezra. Those who have married foreign women have added to Israel's guilt. In other words, the whole community is affected. The guilt is corporate. And so is the response. Verse 12, the whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say. God's people acknowledge their guilt and together they act. In verse 16, Ezra selects leaders from all the family divisions and they carefully investigate each individual case. And so you see, as the people repent, they do so corporately. And again, the same is true for us today. Jesus in Matthew 18 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 show us how sin and repentance is never just a personal, private issue. They explain how the church is to take corporate responsibility in repenting of and rooting out sin. And so repentance is radical, it's corporate, and then finally and crucially, it is hopeful. The book of Ezra ends on what feels like a pretty negative note, doesn't it? We get this list of guilty names and then it just stops. And so it seems that well, that Israel has learned nothing. Here they are again. 
It was unfaithfulness that led them into exile in the first place. And now, having been restored to the land, having received God's blessing and kindness, they're making the same mistakes all over again. And so it all seems pretty bleak. What hope is there when the people's hearts are so inclined towards sin? What hope can we have when we repeatedly fail to live God's way? Yes, Shechaniah says in verse 2 there's hope for Israel, but well, where is it? Well, as we've seen time and time again in the book of Ezra, the ultimate hope for the people is not found in their temple or in worship. It's not found in the law. It's not even found in their commitment to cut out sin and to live according to God's word again. No, the hope of Ezra, the hope this book is meant to leave us longing for, comes hundreds of years later in the arrival of Jesus Christ. You see, earlier on I said that that repentance is all all about turning around, uh, turning from our sin and walking in the opposite direction. But that's not all it is. You see, the, the key to true repentance is not just what we turn from, but who we turn to. True repentance is hopeful because in it we turn from our sin and to our Saviour. Repentance is hopeful because in it we see that by ourselves we are hopeless. By ourselves we can do nothing about our sin. And no matter how hard we try or how guilty we feel, we cannot deal with our problem of unfaithfulness. Ezra teaches us that. But Jesus can. Jesus lived the faithful life we cannot live. He never failed to live God's way. And yet, as we're going to think about as we head towards Easter on the cross, Jesus willingly bore our guilt and shame. He died the death we deserve. And he did it so that we could have hope. Jesus died so that we could have the certain hope of our sins forgiven, of our relationship with God restored. And so now, whether we've had the very best day or the very worst day, if we trust in Jesus, then our status doesn't change. We are always a forgiven, loved child of God because of him. In Jesus, we are given a new status. And in Jesus, we are given a new power. The Holy Spirit living in us. The Spirit who enables us and strengthens us to fight for holiness. Who works in us so that together as a church, we can root out sin and seek to live lives in faithful obedience to God's word. And so you see, repentance is hopeful. It's hopeful because it brings us to Jesus. And that's really where the book of Ezra should leave us. With our eyes fixed on Jesus. 
the one who comes not just as the hope of Israel, but the hope of the whole world. We're going to pray together as a church family in just a moment. Together we are going to confess our sins to God, just as the people did then. The words are going to appear on the screen. You can say them quietly to yourself along with me, or you can pray them silently. But however we do it, let's come to our gracious God in prayer. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you made all things and you call everyone to account. With shame we confess the sins we have committed against you in thought and word and deed. We rightly deserve your condemnation. We turn from our sins and are truly sorry for them. They are a burden we cannot bear. Have mercy on us, most merciful Father. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all that is past. Enable us to serve and please you in newness of life. To your honour and glory, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The only reason that we can confess our sins to God, the only reason that we can stand in the presence of a righteous God, that we can lift our face to him, is because of what Christ has done for us at the cross. It is in Christ alone that our hope is found. And that is what our next song is all about. So when the music starts, please stand and sing these words in your heart.